Welcome to Shedding Light Hunting Stories Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the average Joe and their hunting stories. I'm Travis Williams, your host. You're listening to Episode 9. Hey guys, welcome to the show. This show is brought to you by our sponsors at... Okay, maybe one day I'll, I'll go back in and fill that spot in if I get a sponsor. Uh, nine episodes in, you know, nobody's knocking at the door yet, so I, I guess I'll just kind of have to hang in there. <laughs> but I tell you what, I'm happy just to be sitting down with some guys and girls and hearing some great hunting stories. That's what it's all about for me. Uh, you know, this idea popped in my head actually two years ago. Um, I listened to a lot of great podcasts. Um, I listened to the Wired to Hunt podcast with Mark Kenyon, Nine Finger Chronicles with Dan Johnson, uh, The Sportsman's Nation, The Rich Outdoors, uh, Whitetail Rendezvous. Listen to all those podcasts, and and I absolutely love them. There is so much good information out there on the internet, uh, and I think it's made me a better hunter. Um, and maybe just know more about uh, the animals that we go after, and I think that's super important. But one thing about those podcasts that just prompted this idea was as I listened to them, what I loved the most was hunting stories. Whenever somebody would kind of get tactics are fine, I want to learn, I want to get smarter, but honestly I learned the most from a person just telling a story, what happened and what worked for them. And so that's where this idea came from. Um, But I kind of put it off. You know, sometimes you have a good idea, but you don't act on it. And so I put that off for a year, and finally last year in September, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to try and figure out how to do it. And so I had my first guest, um, first interview was on September the 24th. And I sat down with a guest that you might not consider an average Joe. Um, This person has killed multiple bucks over 200 inches and some bucks close to that as well. Um, He works in the outdoor industry. He's an author and just a super nice guy. Uh, What makes him an average Joe to me is that just sitting down talking to this guy, he's just like you and I. Um, He loves hunting and he puts a lot of time into it managing properties um, and he's not using like high fences or anything like that but he's also a guy that has done the right thing um, but it's come back to bite him Um, maybe you can relate to that and that guy's name is Don Higgins and I am so excited to have him on today I'm finally releasing this now you might be wondering why why have you waited Um, this podcast has been a hard one for me Um, on September 24th I sat down with Don and recorded the interview, and then uh, something crazy happened to me on September 25th. And um, so we got some good news, a great story, and then we got some bad news. So if you want to hang till the end of this podcast, I'll tell you what happened on September 25th. But uh, most importantly, I want to get into this this story with Don. Don is going to share about his first buck that he ever got uh, that was over 200 inches and what happened. The story afterwards is absolutely uh, crazy, crazy turn of events. So all that said, we're going to go ahead and just jump right into this podcast interview, and I, I hope that you enjoy it. Here's Don. All right. I have Don Higgins on the phone here. So, Don, how you doing, man? Good. How are you, Travis? Uh, doing pretty good. Um, just uh, getting used to learning how to do these podcast things. So thanks for uh, being patient with me and hopping on here. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so Don, uh, I think most people probably have heard about you or read an article or seen some of the videos. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just a, a quick introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're into these days. 
Well, I'm 55 years old. I live in central Illinois where I grew up. Um, I shot my first deer back in 1979 when I was 16 years old. And when I walked up on that first buck, it's, my whole world changed. Um, God lit a passionate fire in my heart for, for whitetails and especially for chasing big mature bucks. It just burns hotter with each passing season. And, uh, you know, I've, I've made a career out of it. Actually, I started as an outdoor writer about 22 years ago now. I've had articles published in just about every major hunting magazine. Uh, I've written two books on hunting trophy whitetails. Um, I do consulting work. Uh, got a, a whitetail land management consulting business where I meet with landowners and, and, uh, you know, design and develop plans for their property so they can make the most of it as far as deer hunting. And, uh, you know, basically I've, I've been blessed to, to make deer hunting my career, but, uh, you know, it's also my passion and my life's calling, really. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, you know, we, we talk a lot about stories. Real quick, could you tell us what that first hunt was like? Like, how did it how did it all come together like that for that first hunt that you had? Well, it's you know it was a different time than than what we're living in now because back then the, the whitetail deer was just starting to take hold in, in the Midwest and especially areas that, that didn't have a lot of uh, wooded cover. And you know, I lived in the East Central Illinois; it's heavily heavily agricultural, uh, open fields. And when I shot my first deer, I only knew of three people that had ever shot a deer. And they were all guys my dad's age, and each one had shot one deer. And those were the only three deer that I knew of that anybody had ever shot. Oh, wow. And uh, if you just seen a deer track in a muddy field back in those days, it was newsworthy. It's, you know, you talk about it at the coffee shop or whatever, and people think you was lying that you actually, somebody's hog got out or something. That's what you've seen the tracks of. So, you know, I was, as a kid growing up, I was crazy about the outdoors. But, uh, you know, deer was something new that uh, not many people knew anything about in my area. And, and when I walked up on that first deer, you know, it, it was just like walking up on Sasquatch. You know, that's how rare it was. Oh, wow. Um, and it's it just totally different than what it is today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I had I had seen a lot of deer shot by the time I got up to my first one, and it was still a neat experience. But you know, I kept on. It was probably I don't know, maybe five years, six years of hunting before I, I killed my first buck or first deer of any kind, and uh, it just all happened real quick. So yeah, that's kind of a neat neat experience there. So yeah, well, good. Well, um, what real quick too before we get into your your main story that you have for us today, um, what's your season looking like? Do you have any? Uh, <laughs> Uh, 200 inches that you're going after this year, or what's what's uh, what's it looking like? Yeah, you know, believe it or not, last year was the season of many lifetimes. Um, I shot a a 206 inch buck, and then on the very next hunt, I shot a 193. Oh my goodness! Um, and I thought, you know, I'll never top that season. I probably never will. But believe it or not, this year I have two bucks to chase that are bigger than those two. Oh, now the odds of me getting now. They're both well over 200, but uh, the odds of me getting either one are, are not near as well as it was last year. So you're, uh, not, last you're not going to put like a you're not going to put a 95 percenter on this one. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> I knew I was going to kill that big one last year just because of where he stayed, how much I knew about him. But 
these bucks are that I'm hunting this year are real world bucks in every sense of the the word. Um, I, I just have permission on on properties to hunt them. I'm going to be competing with other hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, the one buck there's no food pots around. Um, the other one I did lease a small property in his range. I've never gotten his picture on that property, so I don't know that he uses it, but it's real close to to uh, where I know he lives. So I'm hoping that I can pull him over there, maybe in the late season. But it's gonna it's gonna be tough to get either one of those bucks. And if some miracle should happen, and I kill both of them. I may just hang it up. I don't know. <laughs> tough to that that'd be the year, huh? Oh wow! Yeah. Um, wish you luck. That'll be. I uh, can't wait to hear how that goes. So, well, well donkey. Yeah, so um, so part of this podcast is just telling a hunting story. So what, what hunting story do you have for us today? Well, you know, probably in my entire hunting career, which is over 40 years now, if there's one buck that stands out, it would be the buck I shot back in 2004. And it also happens to be the biggest buck I ever shot. Uh, he ended up having 20 points and scored 214 inches. Um oh, wow. And, and, you know, I, I'd always dreamed, but this time in my hunting career, I'd, I'd killed several nice bucks, but, uh, you know, I'd always dreamed of killing a world-class buck, but I wanted to do it a certain way. I didn't want to kill one on a deer drive running by with his tongue hanging out if he's being chased or anything like that. I just wanted to be sitting in my stand and having come by doing what big bucks do when I think nobody's looking. Yeah. And uh it was November 6th of 2004 and I was in my tree stand and, and I heard a buck in the brush chasing does around and he was grunting and you know the rut was just starting to heat up a little bit and it was a good two hours before dark and I thought well that's that's a yearling buck it's got to be there's no mature buck it was, a, it was a bright sunny day and warm and I thought there's no mature buck up on a day like this two hours before dark chasing does around well then the does came out of the brush and they started working towards my stand and uh, I thought, well, I might get a chance to see this buck anyway. And I still thought it was just probably a yearling. And out steps the biggest buck I'd ever seen in my life. He had more points than I could even count. Oh, man. And he was only about 25, 30 yards away. Uh, but he stood right there at the edge of that brush just looking, you know, on full alert at those does that were now feeding right under my stand. And I thought, well, those does are going to pass by me, and then he's going to follow, and I'll, I'll get a shot at him as he passes you know, by my tree. But those does turned around, and they, they started going back the way they'd come, and they, they walked right past that buck into the brush. And as soon as uh, the last one was in the brush, that buck turned and followed him, and no chance for a shot. Um, you know, I could have probably tried to... to to draw my bow, but that buck was alert, and I didn't think I'd get away with it. And I also thought he was probably going to pass by my stand as those does did. And so I, I didn't even think about attempting a shot that day. But I remember, you know, Illinois would allow two bucks per season, and I'd already shot a buck before that, so I only had one buck tag. And, and I made up my mind right then the only way I was going to use that second buck tag was on that buck, and none other. I bet. <laughs> so, uh, but I went home that night, and uh, boy, all night long, I just kept thinking, is that deer really as big as what I thought he was? I mean, it was the biggest deer I'd seen in the wild. And uh, I just, I wasn't sure, was it really that big? And so I was back the next morning in that same stand, and uh, I was that was the only stand I had on that property at that time. 
And I, what I wanted to do as much as anything was just kind of come up with a game plan for killing that deer. So I came back the next morning. The wind was still right for that stand. and I didn't see many deer that morning, but, uh, you know, I kind of picked out a, a couple of other trees just as I'm sitting in my tree. It was a small property, a uh, grown-up cow pasture is what it was. And I kind of spotted a couple other potential stand sites for different wind directions. And because I knew the wind was supposed to switch that day, and, and that stand was not going to be uh, good for anything but a south wind, and it was supposed to, the wind was supposed to switch out of the west. So that morning, basically, I, without stomping through the brush, just kind of glassing at a distance and such, I picked out uh, a stand that I needed to get a tree in for that evening hunt. So a friend of mine and I, we drove my truck across an open field to this tree, which is right on the edge of the cover. Uh, we put up a ladder stand. We, we drove the truck. We had the radio going as loud as it would go. And as we put that stand up, we left the truck running, left the radio blaring. We put that ladder stand up and drove away. Uh, went to town, had lunch, and then uh, right after lunch, I slipped back into that stand. And I'm telling you, I had not been in that stand 15 minutes when I look up and there's that same buck from the evening before rubbing his antlers on a grapevine not 20 yards from me. Oh, but uh, the cover was so thick, I didn't dare try to stick an arrow through it. I didn't know where. I didn't want to wound that buck, you know, and lose him. So there I had him at 20 yards for a few minutes rubbing his antlers on that grapevine, and I got to study him pretty good at that, at that close distance, and uh, he had no idea I was around. And, you know, I determined, yeah, he's every bit as big as I thought he was in high before. He was a giant. So... uh now, I now had two stands on that property, so I, I went back and forth between those two stands as the wind stayed south, southwest, and west. Uh, but then on the 11th of November, um, the wind switched out of the east, so it was on uh, Veterans Day. And it was also rainy and, and windy, so I, I slipped in from a different direction, had to walk across a, uh, a muddy plowed field for about a half a mile carrying a stand and my bow and screwing steps and the whole works. And so I finally get a uh, get my stand up in a tree that I can hunt with that east wind, and you know, I'd sit there for, I don't know, an hour or so before dark. Lo and behold, here comes this buck, but he's now, he's he's cruising looking for does in that uh, foggy, rainy weather, and he's probably 80 yards away and never came closer, but he had no idea I was around. So that was the on the sixth, the seventh, and the eleventh of November. I seen that buck three times from three different tree stands, and he was you know, you a little bit. Yeah, the hunt was on, and and and, uh, and I knew I, I was right there in his home core area. So I, I just had to keep playing the wind and and uh, plugging away, and I thought eventually I'd get a shot at him. So. You know, I'm hunting, uh, this is the only property I'm hunting now. So I know the big guy's there, and I'm going to spend all my time there. And one afternoon, I'm pulling up there for a hunt, and I've uh, been parking my truck in basically the same spot um, for most hunts uh, when the wind was was uh, southwest or southwest, uh, which it was most of the time. I, I park at the same spot, and it, so I'm pulling up there to park one afternoon. I look down the road, and, and here comes this old woman. That she must have been in her 80s. And, uh, I mean, it was a cold, blustery November day. 
and she's in a light cotton dress, and she's got her arms all crossed, you know, and uh, you just tell she was cold. And uh, I thought, well, I need to go see what's going on here. This ain't right. And so I I went ahead and I pulled up there and asked her if I could help her, and she explained that she just locked herself. She lived on the property right next to the property I was hunting on. And she lived up a long lane. Her husband had just died the summer before. And she went out to get her mail, and she'd locked herself out of the house. And uh, she was walking to the neighbors to call her son. And she, she, when she left her lane, she'd walk one direction to the closest neighbor, and they weren't home. So she had turned and was coming towards my direction when I seen her. Well, I, you know, I stopped and asked her if I could, you know, help her and she explained the situation, and, and you could just tell the look on her face. She was definitely afraid of me. I was bundled up in camo, you know, and she didn't know me from anybody, and, and she didn't trust me whatsoever. But it just so happened that my neighbor farms her ground, and I knew that. And uh, I had my cell phone. I said, well, you know, I know my neighbor farms your ground here. Let me give him a call. So I got him on the phone. I told him what was going on. I said, you need to talk to her. I'm going to hand you the phone. You talk to her and tell her she can get in my truck. She's scared to death of me. and She needs to get in here where it's warm. She's freezing to death. So I handed her the phone, you know, and he convinced her that it was okay to get in my truck and that he was going to call her son to come unlock the house and that uh, I'd take her back home. So she gets in the truck and I take her back up the lane to her house and I pull up there and and she starts to get out, and I said, no, wait a minute, you don't need to get out. I'm going to wait here until your son gets here. She says, well, you've got better things to do than take care of me. I says, I'll just get out of here. I said, no, I don't have anything better to do. I was just going deer hunting. I'll wait till your son gets here. And I'll never forget her words. She says, oh, you're a deer hunter? She says, I wish somebody would come and shoot some of my deer. They're just tearing up my garden and everything else. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> I'll be here tomorrow if you don't care. She says, absolutely you come back tomorrow and it wasn't a couple minutes her son rolls in and and i get out and introduce myself to him and and make sure you know if they could get in the house and everything was fine and her last word she's pointing her finger at me this this 80 some year old woman is pointing her finger at me i expect you to be back tomorrow and she she had no idea that i was already planning back tomorrow so because i knew that buck ran her property too um so the next day, you know, I come back and I've got a stand with me. I waited till the afternoon hunt and came early and brought my stand. And I, I thought, well, you know, I don't really know her property all that well. I didn't know if I should just uh, stomp through it and, you know, look for the best spot for my stand or if I should play it cautious and, and just kind of put my stand on the edge and, and uh, to kind of look things over, you know, before making too bold of a move. I didn't want to spook the buck because uh, I knew he did run that property. So, uh, you know, I just kind of came to an inside corner of the woods uh, where a field, you know, makes the inside corner. And I decided I'd just put my stand up there and observe for a couple of hunts. So I put, I put the stand up and I didn't see a single deer that, that hunt, not one. Mm. And it took a, uh, a northerly wind for that stand. So the, the next day the wind changed and I couldn't hunt there. It was probably it was probably close to two weeks later. Um, the wind got right again where I could hunt that stand, and and I hadn't seen the buck again, you know, in a couple of weeks, and I hadn't heard of anybody shooting him. And so I went back and 
hunted that stand again and ended up shooting the buck. And oh, wow. he he ran back into the uh, into the woods and he didn't go far. I don't well, I didn't know for sure at the time. I shot him. It looked like I made a good hit. And I sat in my stand for about thirty minutes. This was a full hour before dark when I shot him. Yeah, how, how did he and come in? He, he came through through the woods. He was going to enter the field right there where I was at in my stand. There was ahead of him was I don't know five or six does and fawns, and then there was a two year old eight pointer that came by. And I, and I mean these deer all passed within ten yards of my tree. And then uh, I, I could see him behind my stand coming out of the, the woods. Um, there was a hole back there about the size of a basketball where I could see the trail through this really thick brush, and and I seen him coming. So when that that the big guy he walked through that little hole that I could see through, and I knew it was him, you know, and my heart starts pounding, and I get ready for the shot, and these deer are right under me, but uh, I'm up high enough they don't see me, and they start filtering out in front of me, and then that two-year-old eight-pointer comes by, and then right behind him comes the big guy. He stops right behind this tree. He's 20 yards straight behind my stand, and he stops behind this giant tree that's just covering his chest. So I, I needed him to take one step out, and, and I could shoot, have a clear shot. So I got my, you know, I've got my release on the string and everything, and that deer takes that one step that I needed him to, and he stops, and it's perfect, and I draw and shoot, and he runs back the direction he came. And I sit there for about 30 minutes, and I thought I had a good hit on him, but I didn't want to take any chances. And the other thing was I knew how big he was, and this is not something that happens every day. So I slipped out the opposite direction and went for help. So by the time I rounded up three friends to come back and help me, it was after dark. And we come back in there, and we find my arrow pretty quick, and then we find the blood trail. And it, it didn't take us 10 minutes, and we found the deer. And, you know, the celebrating began. There's a 20-point buck on the ground, well over 200 inches. Oh, my goodness. Oh, we, we get him drug out and, and uh, you know, take him. And, and there was a uh, – my neighbor that, that farms the ground that, that I had called the day this lady locked herself out of the house. Um, I went by his house to, to show him the deer. He told me he knew that big deer was up there running. He'd seen it while he was farming. And he said, if you get that big one, I want to see it. And actually, his son was one of the, the guys that went back and helped me retrieve the deer. Okay. So we stopped by there and, and uh, to show him the deer. And there was a bunch of other local farmers and such at, at his shed that evening. They was watching the uh, college basketball game, actually. So uh, these guys all come out and they look the deer over, you know, and admire it and things and go back in to watch their game. And I, I come home and the next, next day we're, we're taking pictures of the deer, being a good friend of mine. And, uh, back then, there weren't very many digital cameras. It was all 35-millimeter cameras, you know, where you take the film for one hour developing. Right, yeah. So we'd taken some pictures and and had them developed with one hour. And I, they were they were decent, but I wanted some better pictures. So, uh, But I was out of film, so... A friend of mine that was that was helping me, he went back to town to buy some more film. And while he was gone, you know, I was grabbing a bite to eat for lunch. The conservation officer shows up at my house and uh, knocks on the door and says, I understand you shot a pretty nice buck last night. And I said, yeah, I did. And I'm thinking, well, somebody's probably turned me in for poaching or something. And 
he just wants to look at the wound on the beard and make sure it was properly tagged and everything. I, I knew I'd done nothing wrong, so I wasn't a bit concerned at the time. <laughs> and I took him out to the shed where the deer was, and I showed it to him. And he starts asking more questions, uh, whose land was on when I shot it, and, and this and that. And Well, pretty quick I get the idea that something's going on here. And, and then he finally, you know, opens up and he says, uh, you know, I got a call about this deer that, that uh, you was trespassing when you shot this deer. And I said, well, I absolutely was not. He says, well, I'm going to need you to take me and, and uh, show me where you shot the deer. And I said, that's no problem at all. So we go. He says, I'll follow you. You drive your truck, and I'll follow you in my vehicle. So we we do that. We drive up this the old lady's long lane and park there by her barn. As we're getting out of our vehicles, this old lady comes running out of the house. And she's got her finger in that, that game board and some face and she's chewing him out big time she says i told you he has permission to be here you leave him alone it's the other guys that, that called you that don't have permission and uh she was really chewing that guy out and i, I tr- tried to calm her down told him it's all right i told her it's all right you know i'm going to show him why i shot the deer and it's on your land it won't be an issue so we're walking across the field to that corner where my stand was at and we're still a couple hundred yards away, and he says, is that your stand up there in the corner? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, and he says, I've already been here, and I've seen that stand. And he said, but uh, I can't find any blood around that stand. You're going to have to show me a blood trail starting, you know, on this lady's property. And I said, that's no problem at all. So we walk up to the, the stand, and he's out in front of the stand in the field looking for blood. And I said, the deer wasn't out there. I said, the deer was in the woods behind the stand when I shot him. He hadn't made it out to the field yet. So we went back there, and sure enough, I find the blood trail from the night before and track it right to where the deer died. And, uh, and you know, I'm telling the story of how it happens we're there and, and get done. And he says to me, he says, well, I believe what you're telling me because the evidence is here to support it. And uh, so we walked back to the, the uh, to our vehicles, and... Uh, we get in a vehicle to leave, and I, I leave first. I'm headed down the old lady's lane, and I think to myself, "Wait a minute! I, I've got—I had three witnesses with me whenever I was, uh, whenever I retrieved that deer. So if he's got any further questions, I got three guys that can back up everything I'm saying. So, yeah, I, I stop at the end of the lane, and, and this guy's coming in his vehicle towards me, and, and, he's, and I get out to, to go back and tell him and give him the three guys' names and phone numbers." And I can see that he's on his cell phone, and he stops about 100 yards from me, and he's on his phone. So I just stand there and wait for him to pull up. And he pulls up there and rolls his window down. Before I can say a word, he says, I need to follow you to your house and get that deer. And I said, what? And he said, yeah. He said, uh, where that deer ended up dying at, uh, the neighbor claims that's on his property. And I said, did you see a fence that we crossed or any line through the woods? Anything that looks like a property line, he says, well, that's not for me to determine. He said, uh, but I'm going to have to, to take your deer. And he says, I'm going to have to give you a ticket for trespassing or hunting without permission or something. I don't remember what it was now. But uh, mm. so I said, wait a minute. I, I had three guys that were with me that are all witnesses to this. He said, I, I, I've seen enough. He said, I don't need to talk to anybody else. But he says, I will take their names and stuff, uh, put them in my report. So... He's following me to my house, and I'm just 
absolutely devastated. You know, I've waited my entire life to shoot a deer like that. And uh, I do everything right. I, I passed uh, three different times when I seen that, like the first three. I could have taken unethical shots at it. The first one when the deer was alert and looking at me. The second time when he was right there close, but through the thick brush. And then the, the third time would have been about an 80-yard shot. And, you know, I, I passed up all those unethical shots waiting for a good, clean shot. And did everything right and killed the buck. Uh, and then I get accused of something illegal, which I didn't do. Oh, wow. So he, he pulls up there and, and he says, I'll tell you, he was in a Ford Explorer. And he says, you know, I can't get that deer in this vehicle. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll hang it up, help you hang it up. Because it wasn't hanging up. It was like laying on the concrete floor. He says, I'll help you hang it up and skin it out. That way you can keep the meat and I'll just take the head and horns. And I said, well, why do you need the head and horns? He says, well, for evidence. And I said, okay, how about we, we skin it out. You take the meat for evidence and I'll keep the head and horns. <laughs> and, uh, he said, oh, I can't do that. I said, why not? Evidence is evidence. You know, it doesn't matter what part of the deer you got. And he says, well, the head and horns is what everybody wants. And I said, what do you mean everybody wants? And he says, well, obviously you want it, and the other landowner wants it. And I'm guessing by the time it's all said and done, the state of Illinois is going to get their hands in it, and they're probably going to want it too. Oh, what a and I thought, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. And I, I said, no, I refuse to, to help hold it, to hang it up and skin it out. I said, I'm not touching it. I'm not helping you load it. I'm not doing anything. And he had to call in another conservation officer who showed up with a truck. Uh, they loaded the deer, and uh, they drug it to the front of the, the bed of the truck, and they propped its antlers up on the uh, in the corner of the bed so that it could be seen as they drove down the road. And as they did that, as they were there loading that buck doing that, you know, several people have been stopping. They've heard I'd stop that deer. And, Several people have been stopping by all day to see it, and there was a crowd of probably eight or ten people at my house that had stopped to see the deer, and they all stand there and watch as the conservation officers haul my deer away. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had to look guilty as could be at that point. And yet there I stood knowing that I'd done nothing wrong. But it, it gets, you know, it gets kind of better than, the more the story goes on, and I know it's a long story. I hope we get time for it all. But, uh, yeah, yeah, a few more minutes here. It uh, so it ends up I have to hire an attorney. Uh, we go to court. I get the deer back the first day in court. The judge says, you know, it was illegal seizure. Uh, my attorney said it was like giving somebody a speeding ticket and taking their car away from them. <laughs> so even even if I had been guilty of trespassing, they had no right to take my deer. Um. So I get my deer back and everything, and it, it, uh, you know, it all worked out for the for the best, but it's quite an ordeal. Yeah, that's that sounds like, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes you can do the right thing in the right way, but still, you know, still be accused of things, and that's just that's frustrating. Yeah, and you know, there were some real, you know, lessons along the way. First, you know, I think about the Good Samaritan in the Bible, and. Uh, as I pulled up that day to go deer hunting, I see the old lady walking down the road. You know, there off to the side is, is the property I was going to hunt where I know the deer of my dreams is living there. And I've waited my whole life for that. And, it, you know, it was the right thing to do to go help that lady. I don't regret it at all. I, you know, any decent human being would do that. But uh, 
to do the right thing and then get permission on the next property is almost like uh, it's almost like God was guiding me to that that lady in that property. Yeah, when you said so, that, that that is that's the first thing that popped in my mind. What would have happened if you were you know 15 minutes earlier that day? Would you've ever met that lady? You know, when you no, met her. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's really neat. Well, and you know the crazy thing is when I was a kid, you know, I ran that that ditch that or creek that ran through both properties and you know, we knew not to go on that property that the old lady owned because her and her husband they lived up that lane, they were kinda of hermits and they didn't want anybody on their property. And I'm talking way back uh, forty years ago before things were like they are today where people pretty much go with wherever they wanted. But that was one property we always avoided. In fact, uh one of the old lady's relatives said the miracle of that whole story is that, that I ever got permission to hunt the property to begin with. So, uh, yeah, it's almost like, like a God thing there that, uh, that I got access to that property. And then, uh, you know, there's a, there's a scripture that, uh, uh, I don't know exactly how it goes, but something like what they intended for evil, I'll turn into good. Yeah. And, uh, well, the hunters on the neighboring property in the other direction, I knew about that buck, and, and they uh, they basically tried to, they're the ones that called the, the conservation officers and, and got the whole ball rolling that way. And uh, you know, when my friend came back from town, I went to get the film, and the buck's gone. I, I told him, I said, you're not going to believe what happened while he was gone. And the conservation officer showed up and, and took my deer, and he just, he, he was beside himself. Yeah. And so uh, I told him the story, and, and the guys on the other property, he went to see him and, and they confront him. And the, the one guy said, uh, he, he said, he thinks he's such a hot shot writing all these articles and these magazines and everything. I'm going to knock him down a notch or two. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I never even knew the guy had an issue with him. Uh, he wasn't somebody that I was close to, or he was just like a. A member of the community, I knew his name, I knew who he was, but we never really talked or anything. Um, to, to think that that guy harbored such ill will towards me, it, it just kind of blew my mind why he would think that way. Yeah. And, that, that, uh, I was going to say that, that verse that you brought up there, Don, sorry to interrupt you. I, you know, that comes from the story of Joseph and what a, I just see the parallel there. His brothers, you know, were jealous of him and they, didn't like, you know, I mean, he got a nice coat out of, from his dad, and it was kind of handed to him, and they got jealous, so they got rid of him. And so all that stuff happened to him, but then at the end of his life, he's actually exalted, you know, mm-hmm. and that's whenever he tells his brothers, you know, what God intended for harm, you know. Uh, he turned it around for, for good, and, and he actually ended up saving his own brother. So that's, that is really neat how that ties in. Yeah, and the way it worked out is, is actually it drew so much attention. I mean, it, it drew national attention where I was getting emails from all over the country, people encouraging me that they had seized my deer for 34 days. It was from the day they took it until I went to court was 34 days. So for 34 days they had that deer. And and I'll tell you, when I was younger, I was pretty rowdy. And if they had done something like that to me when I was 20 years old, it's hard to took matters into my own hands, no doubt about it. And I'd have retaliated in some way. But, you know, when this happened, I was about 40 years old. And I'd matured, and, and I just left it in God's hands. And, you know, I knew I'd done everything right on that hunt, and I just left it in God's hands. 
And when it was taken from me and I was being tested, I just, uh, you know, I, I held fast to my faith that the, the right thing was going to happen in the end. And it actually just kind of catapulted my hunting career and doors started opening right and left. And I happened to get that deer back two days before the ATA show. Um, right. And my taxidermist uh, quickly skinned it out, and I was able to, to take that rack to the ATA show. And, you know, a lot of people in the hunting industry had heard that I'd had this big deer seized and they didn't know what to think. And then when I was able to show up at the ATA show and walk around with that rack in my hand, you know, it almost, uh, it, it, it basically, you know, was, I don't even know how to describe it. It was refreshing, you know, to, to prove my innocence, so to speak. Yeah. Um, here's the rack that you heard so much about. And then doors start opening, and yeah, it just you know there's so many parallels to, to biblical stories with that that whole story of that deer. Uh, I, I think the main lesson I take away from it. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. I appreciate that. I I think the main yeah. thing I take away is you know sometimes you know it, it's hard to do the right thing, and you might do the right thing, but you still suffer consequences. But I think the point is you do the right thing anyway. And in time, you know, it might take some time, might take a little while, but God will come through and, and he'll He'll set things right. And if he doesn't set it right in this life, he'll definitely set it right in the next. I know that. Uh-huh. So, well, Don, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, Charles. I appreciate the, the opportunity as well. All right, there you go. What a great story from Don. Uh, just love his storytelling and just incredible turn of events that led him to be able to get his first 200-inch buck. And um, that's something that I would love to do. I don't know that that'll ever happen. <laughs> but I tell you, what what incredible. And then just the turn of events that he faced, um, you know, it just it's just so many life lessons you can learn from that story. You know, I enjoyed doing that that podcast with Don. Um, he was more than gracious and uh, worked well with me on September 24th. And, and what happened was I don't have great internet at my house, so I, I have to come to my office where I work in order to record podcasts. And so uh, that night I had spent time uh, with my wife, and I have uh, three kids. Um, I have a six-month-old now. At the time she was only a couple, maybe a month old, two months old, and then um, a two-year-old and uh, my five-year-old. Her name is Hattie. And Hattie was born uh, with a lot of complications. In fact, she was born uh, way early. She was two pounds, seven ounces, and um, just a, a crazy turn of events. We had to go to Philadelphia to have her. She had this tumor on the base of her spine. And that tumor um, almost killed her. Uh, her odds were 50-50. And uh, my wife had to have an emergency surgery where they did a C-section, removed Hattie, and just her little feet and her little behind, cut off that tumor, and then put her back in, sewed my wife up. Uh, we call that my uh, daughter's butt birthday. <laughs> and um, while she was in uh, utero after that, she had a brain bleed on both sides of her brain. And uh, Hattie was born, and they, they gave her no chance of survival. Uh, said that she's not going to breathe on her own. She'll never eat on her own. She'll never be able to walk or do anything because of how bad the brain bleed was. But, um, you know, I, I, we just prayed and said, God, if you want us to keep her, we will do everything we can to help her. And she came out breathing, fighting on her own, and um, just a miracle. Uh, two pounds, seven ounces I held in my hands, and... Um, you know, she did have a lot of complications. We were in the, the, the hospital for four months with her in Philadelphia, came back home, 
had her home for 10 days. She had a shunt infection, and uh, that led over time to seizures. And so we had about a year of seizures when she was first born. But from the time that she was probably two on, uh, we just started to see that she was doing well. You know, your brain is able to overcome a lot of things. And uh, Hattie, she was able to overcome so much stuff. Like all of a sudden she just kind of woke up and we just knew that she was there from her eyes. In fact, uh, we started to communicate with her. She couldn't speak. She didn't learn how to eat on her own, uh, but she couldn't hardly move. She could kind of army crawl a little bit. Um, and she constantly had like setbacks, things that would come up and would set us back. Well, Hattie was actually learning how to speak. Uh, last year, uh, we took Hattie um, to uh, a place out in Oklahoma, and we had her hook, hook up her eyes to this like iPad machine, and she actually spelled her name. We had to put her in preschool, but we had no idea that she could even spell. And, I mean, we were just so impressed with what God did, and, and that's where we give the credit. God uh, gave us all that. Um, she hadn't had a seizure in a really long time. Uh, on September 24th, uh, I remember I was playing with Hattie and uh, helping her on the ground, trying to get her to crawl again. She had had a hip surgery the year before, so she was just starting to recover from that and really get back to crawling. And uh, I had my interview with Dawn. So I, I kissed my daughter goodnight and went to uh, the office, came back. She was in bed. And then the next morning, um, I'm, uh, while I'm taking a shower, my wife went up to check on Hattie. And in the middle of the night, she must have had a seizure or something, and she rolled over. And um, we, we think that everything happened very quickly, but it was uh, incredibly traumatic. Uh, tried to save her and got her to the ER, and um, there was just nothing that could be done. And um, so on September 25th, my, my daughter, sweet Hadassah Williams, passed away. And... Um, I tell you that story because this podcast interview has been hard for me to want to release it because I go back to that memory. But, you know, I, I look at it. My wife and I, um, it's been a few months since then, and, and we're actually doing okay, uh, believe it or not. And, and the reason is simple. Um, my daughter was so limited on this earth, and now I believe she's unlimited. I believe that now she looks down on me, and I'm the handicapped one, uh, to be quite honest. Um she is in a place that I think God has prepared for us called heaven. Uh, he's prepared it for the people that love him, that follow him. And my daughter, I believe, was innocent. Um, and uh, so because of Jesus and, and um, all of that, I, I believe that she's there. And she's with my dad. And she doesn't have any bad days. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard sometimes, you know, and if you've ex ever experienced loss, but because of that, I just feel like God has, um, shaped my life and continued to grow me and, and mature me. And I'm, I'm actually, um, in some ways grateful. Um, it would be selfish for me to want her to remain here. Yes, she was learning some things. Yes, she was growing and, and beating all the odds. Uh, but she went from an instant to being limited to unlimited, from an instant from being trapped in her own body to being completely free. And I, I can't be selfish and say I, I want her back. Um, I, I do. <laughs> I do sometimes. But I, I tell you that just because I don't know if you've ever experienced loss or anything, but, you know, Shedding light, that to me is just letting you know that there is, I don't know how you go through this life believing that there's nothing else, um, that this is it. Um, I know one day, uh, I don't know when, uh, one of these days I'm going to kick the bucket. And whenever that moment happens, I'm going to get to see that little girl again. And I don't know if she'll still be a little girl or how all that works, but I just know that she's going to be awesome and she'll show me around heaven and it'll be absolutely awesome. Uh, it's not just sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Um, it's so much better so much better than that. So 
that's the story for me, um, and that's uh, why this one's been a little bit harder and a little bit sweet at the same time. Um, it took me a few months to kind of want to do this podcast again and get back into it, um, but since then, it's been been a blast. Thank you guys so much for, for listening. Uh, I hope that I haven't depressed you today. I'm actually doing very well, loving life, loving this podcast, loving my job and everything, and um, just thank you so much for listening. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up today. Hope that you'll come back for episode 10, and remember, as always, shed the light.